of the world transformed. Um, very strange nothing. Imagine, demand, and build a world transformed. Hi, uh, my name is Akram. I'm your host for the evening, um, and I work at Migrants Organize at the, as the campaigns officer. I just actually began the introduction and then realized um, that I was being cut off in the middle of it. So anyway, welcome everyone. It's great to be here with you all. Um, it's a shame we're not in person, but fantastic work by the TWT team, getting us up and running for the festival this year. And um, despite the awful circumstances that we've been living through, um, it's great to still be able to run TWT, share ideas and be on the call together with everyone. As I said, I work in Migrants Organize, I'm the campaign officer there. I'm going to be introducing our speakers and running us through um, some of the technical procedural things about this evening, how we can interact in the event and um, trying to keep it focused around some of the practical questions that um, we as organizers, people on the left, People concerned with social justice perhaps need to be thinking about and asking at this time when um, political action is uh, so necessary and needed. Um, so in, essentially what this evening is about is um, looking at the title Tearing Down Fortress Europe, uh, Tearing Down Fortress Britain, but of course that's part of broader um, work that needs to be done about uh, the Euro in the European context. But what we've seen over the past few weeks is that despite the pandemic and tens of thousands of deaths, the British government has still found the time to accelerate a moral panic about migration. And they've turned a very small number of migrants coming by boat from the French coast into a big national scandal dominating their national newspapers. And all of these attacks that people have seen, often many of you will now be familiar with them, have been backed up through many years of increasing draconian migration policies that many of us have heard about and know about. Um, so, and this, these are a set of policies whose purpose is to deflect from the murderous austerity that's taking place in the UK by distracting people's attention onto migrant communities, whether that's migrants arriving here or migrant communities who are already living here in the UK. And so alongside this rhetoric we know we have in, in the mainstream media, We've had the Windrush scandal, which is part of the wider hostile environment. We've had um, a fascist discourse and policies being espoused and pushed out through um, the media and through the EU. And we've had a whole host of other policies on every level um, in British society that have accelerated and made life unlivable, intentionally made life hostile in the UK in order to have our migrant communities um, expelled from uh, uh, leaving the country. And so this, um, this dynamic has created a really an awful situation where most people, and as we've seen in the Windrush, of, of which the Windrush is the most prominent example, in which many, many communities that literally can't rent a house, can't work in the UK, can't do many of the most basic things that they need in order to survive. And this, of course, as it happens in the UK, is taking place within an international dimension where hatred for migrants is being advanced by a coalition of right-wing states and groups who are now united around a common project of persecuting minority groups, indigenous people, or migrating, um, uh, or those migrating across borders. So we see in India, 
We see with acceleration of Turkish fascism. We see it with the US um, support for Israel and the policy against the Palestinian people. And we see, it, of course, in the relationship between Trump and Boris Johnson and the, the way that migrants have become a scapegoat and the position that that now holds in terms of the politics of this country. And this growing right-wing coalition has taught us something here and has brought what I've sensed on the left, which is a renewed awareness about the need that we have to build on the left an internationalist struggle, which is around international justice, which is built on migrant justice and which is for open borders. And, um, and, we, and we, there's also a growing awareness that we need to integrate these struggles into, um, uh, into struggles on the left against racism, against colonialism and against capitalism. And with a keen awareness of the disaster that they're all bringing to communities and to our planet. And I think that there's this understanding is not just strategic, but it's also, and not just humanitarian or not just moral, but it's also an understanding that comes from an, under, from an awareness of the unity that we need. So when we see people fighting against a hostile environment and no recourse to public funds and public services, we now understand that as a fight against austerity as much as it is for racial justice. Or when we see striking uh, migrant workers, we understand that's winning a victory against um, their bosses. We understand that's a win, um, and a, a win for, um, for for everyone looking to challenge the, the precariousness of workers in the gig economy. So the migrant struggles are integral to the struggles that we today have in the left. So what we're going to do in today's event is look both in Britain and abroad about how we can continue and strengthen this struggle. Uh, we're going to be hearing from uh, a number of speakers tonight, both from Britain, the United States, and from um, uh, others speaking from the camp in Calais about their work. And in the in the question section, I'm going to be trying to build, bring the discussion around to some of these practical questions. So um, what are the practical struggles of migrant communities? What work are they undertaking? And then also think about how socialists and progressives can contribute to these efforts. What can we do to add to that? Um, and in that spirit, there's two links that I want to share with you all. Um, I'll just put them in the chat now. One is based on some of the work we've been doing with migrants organized around um, uh, understanding the struggle for migrant justice in terms of a wider struggle against colonialism and racism, and understanding the need to speak about and organize around these principles at the same time. And we've, um, we've put this in the... Uh, um, I think has it gone into the it's going to the main chat now. It's called the Firm Charter, and the second is a call for a day of action, which is um, to be organised at the end of October, which I've also sent the link for now. And if there's anybody in their local groups, Momentum, Labour Party, or other organisations, it'd be fantastic if you guys could engage with some of this work, doing some actions around the weekend of action, raising awareness about the hostile environment and beginning to think about what the principles, the activities, and the coordination is necessary to, to start to take this forward um, as a movement. Um, and after, after we've had uh, interventions from our speakers, we're then going to be cutting to a film called Motherland, which traces the experience of two young men forcibly returned to Jamaica after a lifetime in Britain, um, and along with the story of a Windrush generation man denied re-entry in the UK. And, and then, as I said, we'll return to questions from the audience um, and there'll be uh, a box which you can, in which, into which you can submit those questions and I'll try and um, 
pull them into the discussion and try and keep the discussion going amongst our speakers. Um, additionally, there's a few technical things to mention. Um, so before we begin, we have a few rules of engagement as well. Um, we want everyone to feel welcome in these spaces and for everyone's voice to be heard. So please bear this in mind when engaging with chat or comment boxes during the sessions. And please don't use any inappropriate, rude or unkind language and please don't spam. And participants who violate these rules may be prevented from further posting in the chat or comment box. Um, additionally, this, this session will be using a live transcription service called Otter. Attendees using Otter will have to follow a link and open the transcript as a separate window. And then this link will be shared in the chat box by a tech volunteer. So if you're having difficulties, please message the tech volunteer of the chat. Or maybe I should have mentioned that one earlier. My apologies. Um, and also, just a little bit about the World Transformed. Um, the World Transformed is free for all, but it's only possible by the contributions of our supporters. If you're able to, please consider supporting us by clicking on the worldtransformed.org forward slash support to help sustain our work all year round. Um, and we'll post those links again at the end of the session so you can find them um, when you need them. So I think that's now to speakers. Um, so I've got the great pleasure of introducing Belle Ribeiro Adi, who's the Labour MP for Streatham. She's also the co-chair of the Socialist Campaign Group of Labour MPs, and she's a former uh, Shadow Minister for Immigration. Um, and over to Belle. Thank you, um, everyone. Thank you so much for inviting me to speak. Uh, I want to start by talking about the Windrush generation. I think in the case, in their case, I think the phrase justice delayed uh, is justice denied is one that, that rings completely true because still, after all of this time, they haven't seen the justice that they deserve. So everybody knows that when people started to come here from the Commonwealth, when they were invited at a particular time, they were all British citizens. And just a reminder, it was all over the Commonwealth. This means people weren't coming just from the Caribbean, but from Pakistan, uh, from India, uh, from Nigeria, from Ghana, where my family are from. And they all came with Britain as the motherland, working on public services, helping to rebuild this country. And when they got here, they actually even came with passports which said they were British. But, you know, fast forward a few years, uh, a few decades, and see just how many different pieces of, of immigration legislation has been put down, um, slowly getting to a place where in, in, in 2012, it got to hostile environment legislation. In 2014, the Conservative government literally pulled the rug out from under the Windrush generation and changed legislation, which allowed them to be in this country. And it's not that they didn't know that this would happen. I remember very clearly in 2014, Diane Abbott, speaking across the chamber to um, Theresa May, who was the Home Secretary at the time, and saying to her, you know, looking at how this legislation is worded, how do you, you know, can you not see that potentially it will impact people that appear to be as immigrants? Very, very clearly saying it will clearly, you know, impact black people. And they were, you know, quite adamant that no, it wouldn't. And there were only a few brave souls that voted against that legislation, unfortunately. But it, it, it's instances like that that just show how much in this country immigration is synonymous with, with racism. Now, we saw British citizens um, detained, deported, dehumanised, 
and 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 you know denied their rights just because of the color of their skin and despite all of the apologies we've seen um it's a disgrace they're still waiting for justice some people died waiting for justice some people were never even allowed back into the country you know losing losing their livelihoods and their home and by windrush day this year uh, which was a day which was put in place just last year only 60 people out of thousands that had applied had received compensation now i don't think you can ever really put a price on 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 ruining someone's life um, especially at the, the tariff rates that they're offering but at, at the very least you know the government could have, have have set up a system which which you know help people rebuild their lives after what's what's happened and then you know that's a scandal in itself now they called the review they did into the windrush scandal the lessons learned review but it seems they haven't learned any lessons at all firstly they've taken time to implement that that you know that the very 30 key recommendations i haven't haven't really seen anything, but they haven't really learned the broader lessons of Windrush. Um, and, and, you know, this is this is shown by the most recent immigration policy, which they passed, uh, which actually just pulls more citizens, more people in under the under the hostile environment policy. And this time it's three million plus EU nationals. And um, now our, our relationship with the EU is actually going to be our most important. I think external economic relationship for years to come, and you know we're hearing already that we're we're, we're heading for a no deal, which was a little bit obvious. Um, and it, it's absolutely important that we get that right. And our immigration system, from a practical point of view, should be something that fits into that, and not the other way around. But what we see from the recent immigration bill is that they actually just wanted us to pass legislation which allowed the government to just do whatever they wanted without coming back to check uh, to check with. The, you know the rest of MPs in the House, and um, what they call Henry the Eighth powers. Now, I don't understand what democracy even means if any government are just given the opportunity to make laws that so fundamentally affect people's lives and the economy with with little scrutiny and just completely behind closed doors. It's actually a, a constitutional power grab, and I don't think any government, in particular this government, with their track record, should be given a blank check. Um, you know that they could re redeem at any time. Now, if, if the immigration policy they, they brought forward isn't enough, if you just think it in this way, that this will be the second time in the past decade that a conservative government has retrospectively changed the rights of migrants after they've entered the country, you know, after they've lived here, after they've settled here, had children here, opened business here, paid taxes here. And, and instead of making proper reassurances and creating a migration system that is fair and respects human rights, you know, this is what we've come to find. And so you've got children born here having... Uh, lived here their whole lives, being asked to pay over a thousand pounds to to you know to have to be British nationals if they weren't born to a British national. And you see families have been split apart because of the arbitrary immigration threshold. And they've continued with the no recourse to public funds policy, even when the courts have actually said that it's unlawful uh, due to the coronavirus. And the coronavirus has shown that it's inhumane. And the Prime Minister didn't even know that it actually existed. And they've been detaining people for months on end, even tortured victims and victims of trafficking longer than any other country in Europe and only to eventually re release 70% of them, meaning that private companies like Serco and G4S are quite literally profiting off the misery of people who should be allowed to remain in this country. And, you know, even if they weren't looking at it from a humane perspective, if they were to look at it from an economical perspective, this new points-based system they're proposing wouldn't even work because 69% of the EU nationals already here wouldn't be allowed to come into the country, wouldn't be eligible 
under these rules. And, you know, they continue to go along that line of, um, you know, uh, uh, calling them low skilled um, instead of calling them low paid. And I think that's an absolute disgrace. There's no such thing as low skilled work, just low paid work. As far as I'm concerned, all work is skilled as, as, as long as it's it's done well. And just continuing to go down that line is just absolute disgrace for all of those key workers who, you know, are low paid, but continue to see us throughout um, the pandemic. Now, I know that we made quite a lot of headway um, in the past few years with Labour's immigration policy, you know, changing it from a situation with, with, with um, you know, those disgraceful mugs. And, you know, from a time where people wouldn't be willing to speak up for migrants. And I never thought that I would get to a time where, um, you know, you would see a, a Labour Party conference get up and, you know, give a standing ovation and be and be happy and be pleased right across the across the conference that, you know, we had voted to close down all immigration detention centres. That is not something that I thought I would see. And um, so we've, we can, we've come so far and it's so important that we as members continue to make the point that we shouldn't be rolling back at all. Unfortunately, some it, it, it can be too tempting when people look at it as a, as a tool, um, as a means of, of, of winning votes. But, you know, it, it's a downward spiral and, and we're never going to win votes. So we, we, you know, we need to be very careful about how we're approaching things, particularly with refugees at the moment. You know, during the pandemic, migrant workers were amazing. And as soon as, you know, everybody's pointing the finger at the government, and rightfully so because of their disgraceful handling of the situation, they've gone right back to what they usually do, scapegoating. Uh, migrants scapegoating those those particular refugees that are crossing the channel at the moment, making some very disgraceful suggestions about what should happen to them. Um, and you know, we need to be standing up, standing clear, making making it clear to 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 our leadership, uh, to our members, that we remain a party that supports migrant rights, that we believe that refugees are welcome here, and that we shouldn't have to bring a complete end to the hostile environment and stop scapegoating migrants in the way that we have. There are no votes for us to win there. And, and even if they they were, as far as I'm concerned, that's a road that we should not be going down at all. We need to be educating people um, and not, not pandering to, to, to racists in that way. Thank you very much. Thank you, Val. And um, was it, in, it was in April that Priti Patel was saying that she wanted to bring an immigration bill forward that would uh, send the left into meltdown. And so really in parliament, um, we, you know, everyone in the left and in our movements and our trade unions and our migrant groups need to be working with our progressive MPs to make sure that we support and challenge and work together about each one of those. Um, each time new laws are introduced and a new bill is introduced, we're there and ready to respond. So um, thank you, Belle. Thanks so much. Um, our next two speakers, uh, many of you will be familiar with, obviously, Calais, which is one of the sites of um, uh, what was and is uh, one of the camps and we've got two speakers from there today to speak about their work. Uh, one is Luke Blaster who is an audiovisual artist and activist from Calais and her work covers many areas from illustration, painting, animated film and musical videos to visual and musical performances and with her is uh, Omar Rashid who's a Sudanese poet and migrant who lives between Paris and Calais and yeah as I said they'll be joining us together. Over to you both. Thank you. Hi, everyone. So thank you for having me. Uh, so I'm Loop. I'm based in Calais. I'm an artist and activist here. 
Uh, I was born here, but I studied away, and then I came back uh, about six years ago in 2014. Um, since then, uh, I've been involved in solidarity and activism, um, and it was also a turn in my artistic life as Calais became like the main topic uh, of my work. I've documented in many ways uh, the life in squats, jungles, and people living in the streets. Um, working on an alternative representation and focusing on the people and the individuals who are stranded here. So uh, with the years, uh, my perspective and knowledge have uh, changed a lot uh, because first, what really shocked me was uh, the difference between the media coverage, the official communication of the, the authorities and with the reality that I, I met um, because I went on the ground and I spent time uh, in the squats and in the jungle and I saw with uh, my own eyes and talked to a lot of people. So I realized there was a lot of uh, lies and manipulation of the public opinion. So making a very narrowed uh, vision. And on the other hand, uh, what I met was a great humanity. Uh, I got to meet uh, a lot of different cultures and learn about history, uh, meet other experiences, learn about politics. Uh, it's not my background. I, I've studied art, but from the moment I stepped into this, the world became a lot larger uh, because I could understand the bigger picture and get to understand uh, the world basically, and what was going on, for instance, in Sudan, Afghanistan, or Ethiopia, etc. So also with like recently with uh, anti-racist movements and Black Lives Matter, uh, I understood more about the impact of racism and, and capitalism, capitalism, and I could connect it with our situation. And I understood that racism drives a lot of the decisions, but furthermore, it's really used as a tool to justify an extreme uh, repressive politic here in Calais uh, because of dehumanization of, of the people. So it's a circle and, and the local authorities benefit electorally and materially from this situation uh, to reject uh, a whole population. To give you a little update about what is going on at the moment, there are like about still uh, hundreds of people uh, both in Calais and in Dunkerque, um, on the, everywhere on the coast, uh, probably like 2,000 people. And the police harassment is permanent. The destruction of tents and belongings happen on a daily basis. Um, so it's a very temporary life and the people are constantly forced out of their camp. The police wake people in the morning uh, and ask us to, to move every morning. I insist it's really every morning around eight o'clock. And over the top, like this summer, the, the medias have been looking for spectacular stories to tell. And they were very less interested in, in showing how is the daily survival for people, including many women and children, teenagers who live uh, here homeless in the streets. So it's been very crazy. Um, also with the death uh, our, of our brother Wajid. And it was very weird how journalists keep asking us uh, to get interviewed, interviews from people who 
plan to attempt the crossing by boat and it, it became very obscene and um, morbid. So how, how to maintain like life and our sanity in this situation because um, homeless people suffer this situation and also citizens who live here because we are also victims of this oppression and we suffer from the consequence of a militarized city. So for me as an artist, um, like it's also like a struggle to make our cultural life in, in like a very uh, control, control freak uh, city. So our expression is also like controlled, um, like what's good or bad for them. So even if my message uh, as an artist has never been extreme and just talk about solidarity, the, the simple fact of our existence uh, is like an act of rebellion. So for me, like art is not like an escape, but it's a way to show, uh, to shape an alternative and to make it real. Uh, it's a way to connect different people and to work on the idea of a community. And I know that like it has like changing my way of living the city, uh, it also changes its, uh, its DNA. So art helped me to represent what, what we are and our reality um, and to step away from the emergency and to look at like a bigger picture. So nowadays it's, it's what I try to do is simply like being an alternative. Um, I'm almost, I, I've said what I wanted to say. Uh, just one last thing, we are preparing um, a mobilization, uh, a protest on the 26th of September. So we do, we want to call everyone uh, on the 26th uh, to join us. And yeah, we, we're gonna do things here. So if people want to join the call there in the UK or to come over, we are looking for like speakers and people to support us. So it's a call to anyone here, yeah. And I will let my friend Omar right. to speak. Okay, uh, hello everybody over there. And my name is uh, Omar, I'm from Sudan. Uh, right now I live in Calais, uh, in Jingle. So I'm very proud, I'm very happy to be with you at this moment. And I'm really, very happy for inviting me and share me with really very you know important topic concerning refugees and yeah so uh, before say thanks uh, say something really i'm very very happy and really thank you everybody and uh, let me start by something which is incredible. I did it uh, during the time our friend, which is Wendy, uh, when he died in the sea. It's like a short poem, but uh, I hope it will be uh, really very effective and excitable for you and really it's very, very important 
to look at this site and for especially for the sight of those young you know refugees who are dying in the side of sea so i said to my friend farewell and goodbye friend of mine stay well i became too far from you my days have been ended but remember me and the days we we spent together in jingle yes this is the life sometimes it's sad and sometimes it's, it's happy i hope to see you next time but i think it's impossible i have not luck to cross to go england but you don't give up try to success that line and say hello to half moon street when re when you reach there i would never ever reach my dreams because my soul became one of refugees history and this is new tragedy which is has started in new city which is in Kale city but you don't worry just pray for me bro may god rest my soul in peace i would be it would be enough for me but by friend of mine my dream shouldn't be achieved but they have been lost in the sea with the water by by friend of mine don't give up try to success that line stay well by taking care of yourself bye bye friend of mine so this is a short you know poem which i did it to our friend who has died in said sea and really it was very big shock and you know breaking heart and so on really really you know and we were very you know full of sadness and so on so what i'm going to say is like the new tragedy which is started in sight you know kali people trying to cross to go england and you know really it's very very difficult and so that which you know affect me to so to do so but uh, in, you know what we are wearing you know and the life is very you know difficult to live in jingle and so on so and even you know it's really heartbreaking when you hear you know like such a story and yeah it is really really very very you know painful and yes so i'm going to say thank you and yeah thank you for everybody thank you lupin nomar thank you very much for your for your poem and your intervention and um everyone will remember how calais has been one of the ways of measuring and seeing the inhumanity of the British government and their immigration policy. 
that literally an hour from London, many people, even including people with family in the UK, to be in London in an hour on the train, and yet they're forced to live in uh, a camp by the British and the French government in collaboration with one another. And many of the young people I met when I was there as well came always from countries that the British had invaded or the British was responsible for selling arms to or the British was responsible for, for supporting their despotic and their racist regimes. And that's, as of course, the case in Sudan, where last year uh, an amazing revolution rose up to demand freedom and justice and dignity. And it was the British state, together with the Emirati and the Saudi governments, who, um, who uh, put down the people's wish for democracy. And that's why people are forced to flee, because of imperialism and colonialism that continues until today. Anyway, thank you very much for sharing um, your story. You. I'm going to now turn to a <clears throat> um, uh, to Roger McKenzie to speak more about uh, here in the UK and the context here. Uh, Roger McKenzie is an assistant uh, general secretary at Unison, one of the UK's largest trade unions with responsibility for organizing and recruitment, as well as membership and activist um, uh, as a membership and activist in education. And any Unison members on the call may want to look out for Roger's name in any forthcoming elections soon. Thank you very much. Uh, <clears throat> thank you. Thank you, Akram. Um, I'm feeling um, very moved um, by the last contribution um, and the scale of the, the kind of challenge that we face um, in terms of not just raising these issues, but organizing around them. I'm, I'm also kind of mindful of Akram's very initial introduction to this evening, um, where the introduction that he gave could have been my parents, really, when they came from um, Jamaica, the hostility that they faced, um, the um, violence that they faced too, um, not just um, in the streets and being attacked by racists, but also um, within the workplace. And many of us will know our history and know about how the trade union movement often um, were not on the, the right side of history at that time. Thankfully, things have moved on massively, um, where the, country, the country's largest trade union, um, which I'm proud to be an assistant general secretary of, um, is now at the forefront um, of the fight for migrant rights, um, but also um, at the front of the fight against racism, the, the Black Lives Matters movement, the, um, the continuing rise of the far right um, within this country. I'm, I want to talk more about what we can do. Um, I'm an organiser, um, as Akram said um, in my introduction, and I'm always looking to see, well, what are the lessons that we can draw internationally and from this country um, around um, how migrant workers have not just waited for somebody um, to do things for them or to even show solidarity, because that's not always been forthcoming um, in many countries, um, as we know, um, but what they've done for themselves to build movements for um, not just to um, stand up against the attacks that they're facing, you know, kind of defense organizations, but organizations that promote migrant rights, that, um, that um, assert 
the rights of migrant workers to be um, human beings, to be treated as human beings. And I'm quite often reminded in these sorts of discussions um, about the Memphis sanitation worker strike of 1968, um, the, the strike that Dr. King was um, assassinated while he was um, supporting. And many, many of you remember those iconic banners that were carried around um, that said, I am a man. Um, and it was all men on the disputes, all those refuse collectors. Um, but they carried those around and it was about asserting their rights to be treated as human beings because, frankly, all of the evidence that they had and, frankly, pretty well all of the evidence that migrant workers today have is that we're not treated as full human beings, not treated as people with rights, not people who are treated as, you know, just being on the same planet as everybody else with the right to breathe and the right to eat and the right to drink and the right to have shelter, all of those things, those basic things that many of us um, take for granted. So what we see across the world is migrant workers not just waiting for those things to be given to them, but actually organizing to try and get those things. And it's that that I want to talk about, really, because that, for me, is the essence of what needs to happen now um, in the UK. What we need to do is to build a movement for not just radical change um, in society, but we need to build a movement that's going to um, encompass migrant workers as part of our movement, encompass um, the expertise in organising that many, many, many migrant workers are bringing to the table. Because when I go around a large number of workplaces, when we were allowed to physically go around many of these workplaces, and I see migrant workers organizing for their rights in the workplace. I see during the COVID crisis, I've seen for myself how migrant workers were absolutely deliberately put in harm's way by this government. Number of migrant workers died as a result of being put in harm's way. But I've also seen how so many of those migrant workers have tried to fight back, have tried to organise um, so that um, they could get some real rights in the workplace. Now, many of those workplaces that I'm talking about there are workplaces where the trade union movement is, um, isn't as strong as it should be. So I'm thinking particularly around care homes. Um, I'm thinking about migrant workers who've told us in unison how they didn't get a choice about whether or not they could be um, going into, um, you know, kind of res residential homes, residential care homes or not. They were told you come in, you sleep into these care homes. If you don't sleep in, um, then you lose your job, basically. And we've seen that time and time again. And what we've had to do is to try and find ways of not just giving solidarity, as important as that is, but what we can do to work with those migrant workers to build real power within the workplace. Because at the end of the day, what it comes down to is this in the workplace. If you haven't got collective organization, if you haven't got people active on the ground in these workplaces, then these employers who think they can treat people like there's something they've scraped off the bottom of their shoe will continue to win. And we have to stop that. So our job as trade unionists is to give 
these workers some a sense of their own power, not to do it for them, because that's not organising. It's the golden rule of organising. You never do for people what they can do themselves, because if you do that, it won't be sustainable. It won't last. You won't get real power. What we have to do as organisers is to work with the migrant workers themselves to try and build some sense for themselves of the power that they have if they organise collectively um, within the workplace, but also not seeing that collective organisation as something that just sticks in the workplace. It's got to be something that spreads wider into the communities where where migrant workers are living um, as well, because as we've seen, there are plenty of organisations out there who want to take advantage by attacking migrant workers in the hostels or the hotels um, where they're living. So our job as always, is to organise. And it's not always going to be easy, but we need to organise. We need to build power for migrant workers in the workplaces that they are, where, where they work, but also in the communities where they live. That's our task. And when you look across the world, that is what's taking place. And our job is to link up some of these campaigns, learn from some of the best of these campaigns, some of these organizing campaigns that are taking place in the United States, um, across Europe and elsewhere, and just see what we can do to learn the lessons and to look at what the trade union movement can do to build real power. Let me finish on this. There is an old, old saying that there is no knight in shining armour who's going to come to our rescue. It's always down to us. It's always about what we do. We are the ones that we've been waiting for. We are the ones that will help to build power for migrant workers in the workplace and in the communities. And the trade union movement, I am sure, will not shy away from that. But what we can't do is just use a slogan that is that we can conveniently use every now and again and do nothing about. This is a time when we have to move beyond slogans, when we have to move to actually doing something that makes a difference for migrant workers. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you so much, Roger. And really, I think the struggle in the next few weeks and months uh, and years around migrant justice will really depend on the role of trade unions and trade unionists, because as workers, people are being targeted. But as individuals forced to implement the hostile environment, that's something that's now also spreading across the trade union movement. And we've seen it a lot with the campaigns that we work on in healthcare, the doctors and nurses are forced to be immigration enforcement officers in, in legislation and under guidance in contravention with their role as a healthcare professional. So really, I think there's a big role for the trade union movement in thinking about how, how can we support members in order to resist these policies safely and practically on the ground and what would that look like? And some of those strategies are really definitely a lot of room and potential for growth in the, in the weeks um, and months ahead. And I, I also agree that we need to be looking about where we can learn some of these lessons from history and from, of course, other places around the world. Um, which brings me very excitingly to our next speaker, who um, will be speaking from the United States, um, where as someone who's done a lot of work on migrant organizing, we've taken a lot and we've been to a number of conferences there and learned a great deal from the approaches and the extraordinary experience and achievements of the movements there. And our speaker is Rafael Navarre, who's from the California State, uh, who's a California State Director of the Bernie Sanders 2020 presidential campaign and the former national political director of the CWA union and founder of Magente, an organization TWT has been in contact with and done work with. 
before. Raphael, we're very excited to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Akram. It's a pleasure and an honor to be on this panel with uh, such great folks who are doing the global justice fight for dignity. Um, uh, you know, I, I want to start off saying I'm, I'm not going to talk about the brutality that we've been seeing in this country in regards to federally uh, immigration and Trump and, and the rise. And I think, you know, that was something we can talk about later. But I actually have a story of hope, as you mentioned, Akram, um, that is rooted in actually my life history in this country. Um, and, you know, one of the things, you know, I was born in East Los Angeles, California, um, and uh, my family migrated from Mexico. Um, and our story is really, uh, uh, my story is really tied to this organizing in immigrant communities. But before I get into the story, I really want to talk about uh, some contextual pieces so that folks can understand. Maybe folks already know how government uh, power is exerted in the US, but I think it's important to ground the conversation in this. And so in, in the US, as some of you might know, we have states that have an enormous amount of power and say in how policy is enacted for that comes from the federal national government. And so governors and their state legislatures actually um, really can translate what a federal policy will look like. So for example, when Obama was able to pass the Affordable Care Act, um, that looks very different in a state like California that is now one of the most progressive states in the country where they've really expanded healthcare. You have community health uh, clinics, et cetera, versus states in the South and Texas, which completely make it difficult for people to actually have healthcare completely limit and restrict uh, people's access, even though you have one federal law, it looks completely night and day in two different states. So it's really important for folks to know, because I know in the UK, it's a little distinct, right? You have a centralized NHS and it kind of, all of that decision is made in the federal government mostly. And then it's, you know, how you see it is pretty centralized. Here, it's very different. And the states have an enormous amount of power. The second contextual fact before I get into the story is, California, the state that I was born in, is a, a massive state. There's 40 million residents in that state. Um, it's the fifth largest, if it was its own sovereign state, it'd be the fifth largest economy, larger than the UK. Um, and so it's a significant amount of resources and population. And when you combine it with the state of Texas, both of those states alone have more of a population than the UK and their um, economies are massive. Now to the stories, California now is a leader in progressive policy. California now is uh, expanded not only immigrant rights, but is leading the charge to uh, combat the gig economy and exploitation by companies like Uber and Lyft. You might've heard that Lyft shut down precisely because of the legislation uh, that was pushed in that state. Now that reality that has currently exists in California is completely different and it could have been a different uh, future um, had we not organized. When I was in high school in 1995, uh, essentially the first, uh, we always say the first Donald Trump was uh, a governor, Pete Wilson from the state of California. Um, Mexican and Latino population in California in the Southwest is always big, but it was really uh, uh, expanding in those years. And essentially a lot of the white uh, power capital structure of the state was trying to curtail our ability, just as other folks have talked of access, of being able to be full-fledged uh, you know, citizens, being considered and respected as a few, full human being. And so they did a, 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 a really grotesque law that was anti-immigrant in California, 
we lost that uh, fight. Um, California actually approved that legislation statewide um, and we only defeated it later in the courts. And California is also the state that saw the rise of our Margaret Thatcher, which was Ronald Reagan. He was the governor of California. So that should tell you of how the right wing tendencies of that state. But in the 90s, there was a decision made precisely because of these attacks by a lot of not only immigrant rights leaders, but also labor leaders who decided to really build and organize in immigrant communities. And you saw essentially within 20 years, uh, California is now, as I mentioned, radically different from where we could have been and where this right wing's attacks have come and that now have been replicated across the country. And so for us, it was a really intentional organizing. You saw the rise of some of the biggest labor organizing that was in immigrant communities, some of the biggest new organizing drive campaigns, which was the Justice for Janitors, which uh, Roger, actually one of your uh, current, uh, so, uh, com one of my comrades who works for Unison, Valerie Alzaga was a pioneer in, and she really cut her teeth in building that movement. But that changed the, the direction of the state and it allowed us to really, you know, have a different narrative. and. When you look at the country now, the places that have some of the most progressive policies where we see the actual needle turning the opposite to this rightward trend, where you actually see an expansion of, of worker rights, uh, expansion of immigrant rights, is where we've invested and organized. Even states in the South, like in Virginia, um, we saw a, a different, uh, they're, they're moving in a different direction. Obviously this is linked up to the historic organizing, especially in the South, of black liberation struggle, which we've learned a lot from um, as immigrant organizing immigrant communities uh, in the US. And so, you know, this is uh, for us uh, critical to actually transform and really drive forward is that you can build in immigrant communities and it's not just about um, uh, organizing for immigrant rights, but a, a sen a expanding really worker rights and dignity in all uh, cases. And, you know, as you mentioned, I'm a founding member of Mi Gente. Mi Gente was founded precisely to do that organizing in Latinx, Latino communities in the U.S. Um, because one of the concerns we had was that this block of, 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 of people in the U.S. was not, could easily become uh, susceptible to white supremacist arguments. Anti-blackness could, could easily become reactionary and right-wing in this country. And so uh, we really transformed that and and we're excited to talk more about that work and how we're success. Thank you. I'm sorry, I thought there was a smoke alarm going off. No, I, that was my timer and I didn't know it actually happened. Yeah, man, don't worry about finishing that. <laughs> That's why I was like, let me, let me, let me cut myself. <laughs> Thanks so much, Rafael. And actually all of what you said in the first part of your contribution was something we have learned a lot from because in the UK we have separate NHS trusts, and we have local councils, and we have regional government and government in Scotland and in Wales, which is much weaker than the US. Mm -hmm. I, the, the principle we took from that, at least when a lot of the organizing discussions we had with comrades uh, there was that we must mobilize every sector, every group of people we can from the bottom up, our neighbors in our communities, our politicians, and our local council, even with a le weaker legal and political framework, how can we mobilize them to bring them on our side? Because we need mass numbers to win and we need a wide scale resistance. So that's definitely one of the big lessons we took. And thank you. Thank you for sharing a bit more about that. Um, I, yeah, so the final part before we move on to our questions is 
this wonderful film we have the opportunity to see this evening, which is a little, I think it's uh, 13 minutes long or so. Um, and the film is called Motherland, uh, which traces the experience of two young men forcibly returned to Jamaica after a lifetime in Britain. Um, and it's alongside the story of a Windrush generation man denied re-entry into the UK. And through the personal accounts of those who have had their British identity questioned by the state, Motherland kind of explores uh, what it really means for someone to quote unquote go back home. And the film is directed by Ellen Evans, an award-winning filmmaker whose work is uh, screened at international film festivals, including Sundance and SXSW, South by Southwest. The film was released in June 2020 as part of the Uncertain Kingdom uh, anthology, and it got positive reviews from the Financial Times, Evening Standard, and The Guardian. Um, it's available now on the BFI player, Curzon Home Cinema, and others, but I think we should have the link prompt in the description for you all so you can see it. Um, for copyright reasons, we're not able to stream the film, but it should be easy for some everyone to click the link now and watch the film uh, through the link. And um, yeah, as I said, it's just under 13 minutes long. And then uh, if you open it in a new tab, and after 13 minutes, uh, you should come back and then we can, um, yeah, then we can come back to things. So keep, our, keep us open and open a tab next to it for the film. And uh, when we come back, we'll have time for comments and questions. So please think about them and we'll start collating them for that section of the event. Thank you.
Hi everyone, welcome back. Um, as you'll have seen, the um, yeah, the film we just saw was a really powerful explanation of what deportation actually uh, means in practice and the impact it has on people's lives and the way it's structured in order that um, it essentially destroys people's lives and gives them, and there's no accountability from the state or the home office. And a lot of the work we're doing here in the UK is to bring that accountability into a keener focus by working around individual cases, also strengthening that in terms of building a movement which takes from those examples and explains what structural change we need in order to end the heinous crimes of which you just saw a few uh, small examples. Um, so now we're going to try and move into kind of a question and answer session. So do get posting in your questions and I'll try and read them out. Um, I'm going to start, um, are we are we to cut to the six of us on a screen or are we still going to stick with, how's it working guys? Um, okay, so it, basically I'm going to be pulling some of the questions out from the conversation that you, um, from the questions that you guys are putting forward and then any of the speakers can just put up their hands unless I specifically aim it towards one or other of you. So I think probably the first question is aimed at you Luke, which is around uh, asking just someone quite practically where can they see some of your artwork or other artwork which is done by migrants or refugees? You want to say something about that, Luke? Unmuting yourself first. I think you're on mute, Luke. Yeah. Hi. Um, I have, I'm on every social media. I have an Instagram and uh, Facebook, I post my stuff on Tumblr as well, more for illustration. And my short film is also online on Vimeo and YouTube, so people can check that and follow the link they will find about my, my art. Yeah. Thank you. Um, we also have a question <laughs> from Dave Camp, which um, any, anyone who'd like to pick it up. Um, she's saying that much of the migration estate has been transferred into the private sector. Corporations like Serco are um, are being paid uh, billions of pounds by the government to house people seeking asylum in squalor. Um, and he's asking, how can we hold these corporations to account? And Roger has his hand up. I don't, I don't think you can hold these um, companies to account. I think the whole point is that these um, properties, these this work needs to be brought back under democratic control. I mean, that's the that's the issue. Um, you can't. Um, all you can do with pr these private companies is fight them, frankly, um, because they're only in interested in one thing, and that is profit. And we have to fight against the profit motive being part of this work. Um, it's just fundamentally wrong. Um, so the whole of this work needs to be brought back onto democratic um, control. If I could just add uh, something to, I think, you know, mi gente has launched a campaign against Palantir. Palantir's massive uh, uh, IT company, who's basically managing a lot of the, the um, essentially uh, the, the raids and and uh, deportations of immigrants. But it's also actually a part of building up the surveillance state. And one of the things that was interesting for us as the campaign has expanded is that we've actually seen. Um, there's been some folks across the spectrum who are anti-immigrant on the right side, but care about surveillance, 
who have now started to actually join in to actually rein in companies like Palantir. So I just wanted to add that I think it's important to see these moments of unity, even if there's massive, massive uh, opposition to the values of those folks, but that there is actually some things that can actually uh, build momentum um, and and have unity with folks who are not normally aligned um, that we've been trying to do. But I also absolutely agree with Roger. This is the bigger strike of the bigger task of actually taking on um, and uh, power and exerting power both at the state for us and the federal level. And, and Rafael, can you say about how, can you say maybe a little if it's appropriate, about how you were able to do some of that? So how was it appropriate to reach out? So Miente has done a, an amazing job of actually doing a corporate, traditional corporate campaign on Palantir, basically everywhere they showed at one point uh, where the company was at. So they'll, they'll sponsor at universities to try to recruit students um to actually their company we've actually put up massive art installations of essentially babies in um cages um and that they are directly responsible so really making that the the, the visual case and they've lost uh, a lot of uh, sponsorships university refused their sponsorships they've actually been losing money we've actually seen that the problem here is they've lost some other clients um, that we've been able to move, uh, but they're actually being sustained by the federal government. The federal government is actually expanding their services. That's where they're primary. And so it's been a difficult uh, fight to get them you know, removed or to, to get them to back off from their work. But we've definitely seen some inroads. And again, the biggest piece is raising consciousness and awareness of what Palantir is, what it does, and how it's actually helping to jail babies and children here in the United States. Yeah, and I think that there have been some discussions in the UK about, about of G4S accommodation um, now provided by Serco. And sometimes when the company is so large, it's so difficult because you don't know where to begin in terms of challenging it. But actually, it also means that it's weak in many different places and the potential for building solidarity in the way you described is much greater. So, yeah, I think uh, definitely some of those approaches would be relevant here as well. Um, there's another question from Andy. Uh, who's asking, much of the narrative set out by the right-wing media and the Tory party is misleading, hyperbolic, or just plain false. Why isn't Labour leadership doing more to challenge this? And I um, I guess it's worth, worth, you know, maybe this is one for you, Bell, but it's also worth kind of contextualizing how, you know, on the one hand, Labour, under Jeremy Corbyn, was able to make huge advances and leaps forward in the kind of policy towards migrants. At the same time, there's enormous pressure exerted by the media. I remember um, seeing Diane give uh, one of her speeches on migration at launch of one of the papers she was delivering. And the first five questions were from the right-wing media attacking her, and she was slandered and misrepresented at every turn. So what kind of narratives and stories do we need to be telling about, I guess, class solidarity is part of it, uh, that would be useful for this moment? And how can we bring that to the fore? I'd be interested. I think, firstly, one of the things... Um, working as part of Diane's team before uh, I became a member of parliament myself, that we did in terms of shifting Labour's attitude. Obviously, the, the changing leadership at the time helped, but it, it wasn't just that. It's sometimes you've just got to tell people again and again and again until they get it. And I think part of the, the issue has been that when people try to make those positive cases about migration, because of the backlash they get, they all of a sudden think they need to change tack or, you know, you know, think about a slightly different approach. And that is the absolutely wrong thing to do. If you know that you're right about something, you'd need to keep beating the drum about it as loudly 
as you can until you get to a place where others come along with you. And I, I think um, you know, when I spoke earlier describing what a change it was to get to Labour Party conference and be able to have a policy um, that passed by the entire conference unanimously that we would close down immigration detention centres. That's because by the time we got to there, you know, that members that may have, you know, voted slightly differently or said something, something slightly different were, were, were confident that this was the direction of the party and were confident that it would have the backing of Labour members across the country and that it's something that we could articulate and that we could defend. And um, we, sh we just shouldn't, I think, bow down every time we hear a slightly negative comment. And I think far too often with politics and politicians from both sides, that's what we do. You hear people saying things such as, oh, well, um, it's not that people are racist. They're just really concerned. You need to look at, you know, their concerns about how maybe their high street has changed um, because there's a Polish deli or because um, they have more West African um, neighbours than they used to and it's a cultural shift and you need to look at the cultural issues and why they might find that a problem but it's always been always been the case that people have used the presence of migrants um, in, 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 in a way to scapegoat them and I think if we were we did a lot more myth busting being clearer about what the situation is for migrants in, in this country not that they're necessarily getting everything that people say they are um, not that there's all this free housing available to people, not that they're taking away, because that, that is a very key point of racism in itself and you see how it's played out. The idea that to give somebody that looks like me something is taking away from somebody who is white, that's it. Any any mention, even to say something as simple as black lives matter, that idea is something that we need to break down. It, it's gonna take education, but mostly it's gonna take the political will to stand fast against you know, the, these far-right populist ideals. Yeah. And I think that's that's where the debate, you know, that's where I think, from to my mind, the biggest advancements have been made because in the party, views have shifted considerably and that wasn't always the case. And a lot was done around education. And, you know, you talk about the, um, the motion of the Labour Party conference. There were three or four other motions about internationalism, about uh, the causes of migration, about anti-racism, that all tied into those same themes. So it was able, by the end, at least the, the many party members had a much clearer picture of what it was they were talking about and why migration wasn't just some dispensable position that could be written on a mug or a headstone uh, or whatever it was, but actually was central to our values as a party. And I think I think that point on education is precisely you know, yeah, a really crucial one. Um, that's something we need to definitely build on going forward in the party. And that kind of links to what Sonali is asking here, which is um, why is the wider UK left so resistant to centering anti-racist struggle and what can we do to redress this? Um, you know, one of the, was that your hand, Roger, going there? Because, uh, you know, one of the um, discussions we've had with, you know, actually organizers in unison talking about building work there, they say that, you know, a large number of section of our membership are Daily Mail readers. And there's actually, you know, different views within our unions and we need to work with a lot of our members around this kind of thing. So what kind of could be some of the challenges there, do you think, Jacob? Well, I mean, I mean, I think we have we have to get away from this idea that just because you're in a trade union, that that somehow you're a kind of you know, you know rank and file socialist, kind of ready for the revolution type thing. I mean, it's just not the case. Um, you know, people join unions for lots and lots of different reasons, um, and and a lot of it is that they they need some help and support in a workplace because they've got a bad boss, but they often don't 
put that, equate that across to um, to um, activity within their union, and they don't often put that across to wider politics within um, you know wider society and stuff. And that's just that end of the equation. Um, but I have to say something needs to be said about um, even some of our activists across the trade union movement because um, I I am fed up actually um, of a lot of people who seem to be really comfortable with slogans and really comfortable with gestures um, but when it comes down to actually doing something they can't see that there is a diff any difference so for example we we, we there's politicians there's um, you know, there's trade unionists who will quite happily take a knee and say Black Lives Matters, remember George Floyd and, and all of that, right? Now they'll turn around and go back into the workplace and do some real harm to black workers, real harm, right? So slogans, you have to separate off sloganizing um, and, 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 and what people um, say they're going to do and what people say they believe. Um, you have to separate that off from what actually happens. And I have to say, one of the reasons why for, for so many black workers at the moment, the whole language around Black Lives Matters is so, so important is because our experience is, is to so many people, whether they're inside the labour movement you know, loads in loads within the within our labour movement, but also loads outside of the movement. The evidence for us is that our lives don't matter, right? It, and that's and that's the fact of it. So we have to part of the organising. And um, for me, is about shifting people. That's what you got to do. I mean, you can we can talk with people who agree with us forever. I mean, that's great, right? And it's really comfortable, but it doesn't actually shift too many people unless those people we're talking about who actually agree with each other go out and do something to shift somebody else. That's the only thing that changes. So as an organiser, and we're all organisers on this call, we have to think about. What is it that will shift somebody from A to B, right? Whether they're in the trade union movement, whether they're in the Labour Party, Bell will have plenty of examples of people within the Labour Party who need needed to be shifted. When I was in the Labour Party black sections years ago, we had to shift the whole party to even think about the idea that black people should have a voice within the Labour Party, right? When, when we are looking at this, we cannot fall into the trap cannot fall into the trap of organisers of thinking that everybody is right on and that everybody is on side because the evidence is, is they're not. Our job of organisers is to shift people, whether they claim to be progressive or socialist or whatever, right? We have to shift a load of people whose attitudes, frankly, um, sometimes, and I'm putting it really politely because I'm in polite company here, leads a lot to be desired, if I put it that way, right? But I think I think there's work to be done within our movement for sure. Yeah, and I think I think one of the um, I'll come to you next, Raphael. I think one of the things that we've seen with the work happening on Black Lives Matter is the pace at which awareness can be created. The the, the difference from May until now is extraordinary, and that's come about through you know just pulling down Colston statues in uh, Bristol. Suddenly began this debate, which people have been pushing, advancing for years but hadn't been taken seriously in the way that we might have hoped as, as organizers. And I guess there's more structured ways of doing that as well, Raphael, that you might be able to... Uh, uh, yeah, I just, I can't agree more with what Roger said. And, and I think it's, it's the reason we're in this place in the US is because labor unions 
have been part of enforcing the white supremacist racist structure in this country and even internally uh, not done enough to actually transform the consciousness of of workers within the union in an aggressive way. One of the things I was at, again, CWA, which is communication workers, one of the most progressive unions in the country, we endorsed Bernie um, and I was there seven years and I developed a training program precisely to actually combat. One of the first pieces we had was both immigration and racial justice within our membership. And I remember distinctly how, you know, we would have room people who were Trump supporters who came into the room where we we're training Trump supporters and because we finally were giving an analysis saying, you know, hey, it's not Mexicans taking jobs, it's not, you know, X, X Y, Z, they would, uh, they, and they, we actually gave them a real villain. And the real villain was corporate power in America that's been exacerbating inequality in the country. They're the ones driving the policies that are shipping jobs out, that are destroying unions, et cetera. That was the transformative, but it was a struggle. It was a struggle because a lot of members would literally, I mean, I have one activist who now is leading Black Lives Matter protests in the South, in remote Southern part. And he's a white working class person who was came in and he says the first day was kind of wanting to just throw the table over and reject what we were kind of arguing, but you have to do, this is the unfortunate thing. And I think Roger really said it, you have to do the day-to-day -day work to actually have those conversations, those trainings. It's not gonna happen with you know one, a newsletter. It's not gonna happen. It has to be deep organizing. And a lot of folks sometimes reject that as it's what's too, it's not to scale, it's too costly. But the reality is uh, I always see that as exponential growth because when you actually start to transform leaders within an organization like labor, they have massive reach much more than anybody else. And so those, they become the centers of resistance and I think we're just, it's just, it's a painstaking slow birth work, but if we don't do it, we are gonna have the situation where they're siding with right-wing demagogues who are actually gonna destroy their jobs quicker than anybody else was, but they believe Trump is here to help them because they see Mexicans as, or black folks as problem. And, and honestly, I, at one point I said, I would, if I was a white worker in the US and I had not been, I, I, would, I would hate Mexicans too, frankly because everything that they see in their entire reality is telling them these people are just here, here to take your jobs. And that's a, it's a different narrative and we have to do that deep work. And I, I was just gonna add to that, just following on from both Roger and Rafael, that it has to be a very active thing. It's, it's too often that people think because they have a certain type of values on other things as they, they're progressive, they're on the left, that they automatically get to call themselves an anti-racist. I don't even think a black person who experiences racism automatically gets to call themselves an anti-racist because you're not actively doing something to counter that racism. And more so than anybody, I think, because we on the left hold these values true, every single person on the left, black and white, needs to stand up to the challenge and be actively doing something, questioning their own behavior. All of these things that are very much learnt, um, learnt behaviors, things that have been brought to us by how society behavior, making a point to actively challenge them. So, you know, just as you said, it, it's not attending a march. It's not part voting for a motion. It's not just saying that you're anti-racist, saying that, you know, you've got black friends, saying that you've got a black spouse or black kids. It's an active thing that you have to do and you have to do it every single day. 
can, can, can I just jump back in again? Because that is so important, what Bell's just said, that we, we really can't lose that because um, that reminds me so much of that brilliant book that's um, been out recently, um, Ibram X. Kendi. Professor Ibram X. Kendi's book on how to be an anti-racist. I think it's I think it's just so important that people look at that and start challenging themselves because I, I just see it too often across the the labour movement, um, in the Labour Party, in the trade union movement, where people just think they bought a a pass really by saying, "Well, I'm in the Labour Party, I'm in the trade union, whichever trade union, it doesn't matter," and therefore. How can I be an anti? How can I be a racist, right? And then, and then their, and then the evidence of their behaviour is somewhat different, right? And and and, and I, I just think, um, you know, Raphael's um, um, contribution around that that, that training, um, it'd be, be great if you could send us um, some of that training stuff, right? Because we're we're looking to revamp in unison our training around anti-racism, around migrant workers stuff. And we we need to link up, brother, and and look at what we can do to to get some of that work done together. And that's exactly why um, events like this are so important, because it puts people together and then we can start to get some work done. And it's not just a talking shop. We can actually get some real solid work done together. So looking forward to working with you. Likewise, I'd love to share it. It's uh, We actually, I specifically put uh, Creative Commons. A lot of member, the union trainings are like made uh, where you only members can access it. We actually posted it online. We said uh, we wanted anybody to use it, take it, cut it up, do whatever you want with it. That's how we're going to grow the movement. We can't be restrictive. So absolutely. And, and I'm very excited to share that and, and continue to have that discussion. And I, and I think that, you know, in the left and on society more broadly, a lot of the time it's around migration that the discussion about race becomes uh, legitimized because people use it as a euphemism for something else. Or even if they don't think of it as such, they end up saying, you know, I'm not a racist, but the, the legitimate concerns line of argument. And I think there's a way we can, as you have both Raphael and Roger and Bell, have spoken about understanding how people come to that conclusion without legitimizing that position and saying that it's permissible within the within the something we have to accept rather than something that we have to challenge around migration and that ties into um the next question and i bought us five more minutes so that we can uh just get to this final one which is what practical steps can we take to shift public attitudes in a pro-migrant direction i guess um maybe luke you have something you want to say on this one because your experience of being in calais is going to be quite starkly different to what most people in Britain with very little knowledge or understanding, I think just read some of the right wing newspapers, understand about migration. What was it that for you was some of the most stark, shocking things that you saw, or at least what do you think are some of the important um, things that you try to do as an artist to shift that public understanding of what takes place in the camps or in around migration in general? Um, one thing I'd like to say about this is uh, to people to not uh, just do like humanitarian work, but try really to like go to talk to people and stuff because we we have like a lot of volunteers who come to Calais for like a week or two and they just, you know, they distribute stuff, but we stay in this circle of like a very like... Um, I don't know, I, I don't have the word, but like uh, a circle of just like distribution. And as like an activist, we want to fight for like 
making people more have more autonomy because for example like a few years ago between 2015 and 2016 uh, in the jungle people like cooked for themselves and they could like there, there is some actions that can like give them more autonomy and more voice but I think that the first thing is to go and talk with people and and not just like I mean like humanitarian doesn't sometimes it's not it's not enough I think for for us like we need to see beyond like the emergency and to think about like political actions and things so but like as an artist I would say like it's really yeah like uh, just spending time with people and and talk and and enjoy also like small moments sharing music and anything that's that's uh rehumanizing people like sometimes it's just creating a, a bubble and a place where we can share just like share, share a moment you know is is sometimes also just necessary i would say yeah thanks so much Liz. and I've, I've one final thing is i've just um shared a final link uh, to an organization called Stop Funding Hate, who do kind of corporate challenging work. You know, it's always this question about what can we do about the media? It's a fait accompli, they're so dominant. But actually, we um, think Roger's going to go. Sorry, Roger, we ran over. Um, but thanks so much for joining us. It's a fait accompli that we can't challenge the media, but actually one of the campaigns Stop Funding Hate work on is to try to get companies to withdraw their advertising in the... Um, in right-wing publications. And they've had a lot of successes in challenging that and pushing that. And that's one way we can actually talk about, just on the level of media narrative, what we can actually do about pushing pushing back on that front. Um, but we've sadly ran over our time. So I'm going to have to draw it to a close. Thank you, everyone, Raphael, Loop, and Bell, and Roger, who's no longer here, and all the technical team behind the scenes who really pulled it together really smoothly. Um, really sorry we kind of got a little cut short. Um, but thank you all also, the attendees, for joining us. Um, so to continue the discussion, we've set up a dedicated space on the TWT community forum. So if you already set up your account, you can uh, click the link that should be posted in the chat now um, to find a relevant discussion thread to this event. And if you're registered for the festival, check your email for the sign-up link to the forum. Um, and remember that there's loads of events at TWT20 and they're filling up very quickly. So be sure to register for any that you'd like to attend as quickly as possible. Um, um, you can make sure you register for the festival at the worldtransform.org forward slash register and then go to the individual event you'd like to register for on the program. And just a reminder from the what I was saying at the start is if you've enjoyed the session and would like to work uh, to help maintain the uh, to support TWT's work throughout the festival and beyond, please go to www.theworldtransformed.org forward slash support and consider supporting The World Transformed. And two final links that I sent earlier, there's a day of action in October, link will go around one more time. Please consider joining, there's a really good chance we can build a strong weekend um, of events and action that will be really influential. And part of that work is built around this uh, firm charter, big a uh, list of organizations and groups and individuals struggling to overturn the immigration policy in the fuller sense, uh, including its colonial and its imperial roots. 
and that should also be being sent around now as well. So please consider taking action from this event and hopefully the speakers and everything they've spoken about and everything we've covered today will give you some ideas and inspiration for how to go forward and do that. Thank you very much for joining. View the full TWT20 program and become a supporter today to help us deliver political education all year round at theworldtransforms.org.